Welcome to the Donaghclody Parish Podcast. We're an Anglican Evangelical Church committed to glorifying God, preaching the gospel, and making disciples. Our current evening series is from First Kings. Welcome to this Sunday evening as we look at the last chapter of our sermon series on King Solomon from First Kings 1 to First Kings 11. But before we uh, look at God's word, let's pray together. Almighty God, as we turn to your word, Father, we thank you, Lord, that the whole Bible points us to Jesus. Even in this passage tonight, we're going to see wonderful things about God's true King, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, as we look at King Solomon, we pray for your spirit to work with your word and to point us to Jesus. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been looking, um, as I've said, from 1 Kings 1 to, to 1 Kings 11, and this is the last chapter of Solomon's life. And with most stories, the key to the whole book comes with this last chapter. As we say, a sting in the tails, we look at things in a different way. And during the last few weeks, we've been looking at the life of Solomon. And we are now coming to the end, and there's a definitely a twist in the tail. Although the clues of Solomon's downfall have been there all along, right the way through uh, first, or chapters 1 to 11. So far we've seen he's in a blessed life, having established himself as the rightful king. And having been given wisdom from God, he takes himself and his people, Israel, to the heights that they've never been before. As we saw last week, can I get any better than this? As we look back to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20, we'll see that uh, there we read, The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. A reminder of God's blessing to Abraham, uh, that the peoples would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And here we see Solomon has received an even greater blessing than his father David. He's built the temple and given given the Ark of Covenant, the final resting place. He's built himself a palace. It's all, as we saw last week, glorious. But God doesn't see the world as we do. And as we saw this partly last week, we're going to see how God sees Solomon's reign. As we said, this chapter is the last chapter of Solomon's life. But actually, this chapter shows us what's been happening all the way through Solomon's reign. This is where all the clues in the previous chapters come. And we now see the truth revealed. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, we read, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given, to, given by his father, David except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. See, it turns out that Solomon's life wasn't as perfect as we first thought it to be. There have been problems right from the start. It's kind of like when you peel a potato. You know, whenever you're not going to do this much when you're slicing a potato and you see a, a, an eye or a mark in a potato and you peel and you peel and you peel and you peel right back, then actually the rot goes right to the very heart of that spud. 
See, outwardly, Solomon is the most successful king Israel has ever seen. And we saw in 1 Kings uh, chapter 9 how there would be blessing on his ruling for the nation if Solomon stayed close to the Lord, if he followed all the the, the laws of the Lord. But it turns out, as we look at this chapter, there's been something rotten at the core. And we're going to see how God responds. There's three headings tonight. First of all, we're going to look at Solomon's divided affection. And then we're going to look at Solomon's divided loyalty. And then finally, we're going to see a divided kingdom. So, the divided affection. Let's look, 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. And the problem is clear for all to see. We read, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women beside Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites, They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Now, I want to see, first of all, the problem isn't with nationality. It's not the fact that these women are from different countries. This is not, um, as we've seen, sadly, over the last few weeks in America, something to do with race. No. We've seen here, even in 1 Kings 10, that the, the Bible holds Queen Sheba up as a godly woman. So this isn't about race or culture. No. There are some very godly women, even in Solomon's family tree, who gave up their own gods so that they could enter into the people of Israel. But Solomon's wives didn't. And it's not as if Solomon was ignorant of all of this. Look at verse 2 again. They were the nations about which the Lord has told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Here's the warning from Deuteronomy 17 about marrying foreigners. We looked at it last week, didn't we, at the end of the sermon, Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. And there's a specific warning here for Israel's kings, not to take many wives because they'll be led astray. So at the start of his reign, it was very clear that Solomon, what he should and shouldn't do. But through his love for women, Solomon was slowly pulled away from his love for God. You see, many would have told Solomon that it was a politically wise move to marry this one or that one, to to enter into a, a, a convenient marriage with this other nation. It would be a wise political move to, to marry the daughter of Pharaoh. And it would have been easy to justify. But again, Deuteronomy 17 said not to go back to Egypt. And then when he married again, it would have been easier and easier to compromise. Just a bit and then another bit away from God's standards. Until he had slowly and surely strayed from the path that God had set out for him. Solomon knew the warnings, but he didn't obey them. 
Other translations say he clung to his wives and they stole his affection away from God. As we read on, it seems that Solomon had about a thousand wives and concubines. And even if you think he reigned for 40 years, that's an average of 25 women a year or two and a bit each month. He basically was obsessed with these women by the end. And as he grew old, verse 4, as he grew old, we read, His wives turned his hearts after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So Solomon's heart was divided. And where the heart goes, the rest of the person goes. Solomon's divided affection now leads us to our second point. Solomon divided loyalty. And we can see that in verses 5 to 10 here, where we read, He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifice to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. He built sites for worship in the high places and mountains and hills. He even allowed his wives to sacrifice and to offer incense to the false gods. And he did this right next to Jerusalem. You see that there, the place where he built God's temple, where he had said in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 23, if you want to turn back there. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 23. He said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. Solomon's love for women means that he's going to go directly against God, despite all the warnings in 1 Kings chapter 9. And so in the end, God must act. He appears to Solomon two times before with a blessing and a warning, and now he speaks to him again. But there's simply a judgment on Solomon's consistent rejection. And the punishment is that his kingdom will be divided. So Solomon's divided affection leads to a divided loyalty and now a divided kingdom. The judgment is there in verses 11 to 13 of our chapter. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I'll not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. The judgment is that the kingdom will be taken out of Solomon's family and given to one of his subordinates. The powerful kingdom that Solomon had ruled over would not be ruled over by his son. It would be taken from Solomon, given to one of his servants. But this judgment is with mercy 
First of all, it will not happen during Solomon's lifetime. And so Solomon will be spared from seeing everything that he created being destroyed. Secondly, some of his kingdom would remain and be given to his son. God has not abandoned David's line as he promised King David. But this is mercy. This is mercy. And it's mercy of God's choosing, not because of anything good in Solomon. This is God being merciful. Verse 13, Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but I will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. God's mercy to Solomon is a gift, not a right. And so the rest of the chapter talks about how this is going to take place. And here we see God raise up three adversaries. And they come from different backgrounds. They have different motivations. The only thing they have in common is that they're opposed to Solomon and his kingdom. The first challenger is Hadad the Edomite. His nation had been conquered by Solomon's father, King David. And Hadad was a boy when all the men of his nation had been slaughtered. He'd been able to escape to Egypt and had become one of their officials. He was a refugee who made good in Egypt. Pharaoh had given many gifts and actually ended up becoming Pharaoh's brother-in-law. And actually his son, Genubath, we see in verse 20, had grown up with Pharaoh's children in the royal palace. Reminder of Moses there. But when Hadad hears that David is dead, he goes back to his own country and causes trouble for Solomon. He wants revenge on the family that had been brought to death to his own nation. And so as David dies, Hadad starts causing problems for Solomon. And then there's another adversary, Rezin, son of Eliada. He's an outlaw, or an outlaw who gathers people around him. And as with Hadad, he's been around from the beginning of Solomon's reign, causing problems. But unlike Hadad, his rebellion isn't out of revenge. It's simply to gain power. Both these men keep on nibbling at Solomon's reign. But the most dangerous enemy is named in verse 26. Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And here the threat comes not from some foreign ruler or a local mob. Here's the threat from within. From one of Solomon's own favourites. Look at verse 26. Also Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He was one of Solomon's officials, an Ephraimite from Zerida, and his mother was a widow named Zeruah. Here is the account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of David his father. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribe of Joseph. We see here that Jeroboam is in charge of the whole labor force. He's been building the terraces and the walls of Jerusalem, and that happened halfway through Solomon's reign. And so this is the last and most deadly of all the rebellions. And also we see Jeroboam was, verse 26, from the tribe of Ephraim. And that's significant because that he's from one of the northern, northern tribes that would break away from the kingdom of Israel when the kingdom is eventually divided. In fact, a few minutes ago, I quoted from 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20, which said, The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. It's interesting that they're seen as two different people. Israel to the north, 
Judah to the south. And with hindsight, we can see these two parts of one country had separate identities. And this is the very fault line which would split the country when Solomon has died. The confusing clues have been hidden in the previous chapters. Now I start to make sense. So at the end of verse 28, Jeroboam is an official in Solomon's kingdom, but then he receives a prophecy from God in the most weirdest way. Ahijah, who's a prophet, basically follows Jeroboam out of the city of Jerusalem to the countryside, and there he gives Jeroboam a very unusual message. He tears his new coat into pieces, and he gives most of the bits to Jeroboam. Let's look from verse 31. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they've forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. And now God makes the same promise to Jeroboam that he made to David and to Solomon. Look at verses 37 and 38. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You'll be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. I can sure, I can get it. Sorry, let me say that again. I'm sure we can guess how that one goes. But as a result, is that in verse 40, Solomon hears about this. He tries to kill Jeroboam. Rather than listening to God's warning, Solomon tries to stop it with his own strength. And so we've seen that God has raised up three adversaries against Solomon. And now with his divided affections, his divided loyalties, these have led to a divided kingdom. And the closing verses of this chapter give the briefest descriptions of Solomon's death and burial and the passing of his kingdom to his son Rehoboam. But they also remind us of this unique period in history. Look at verse 41. As for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and all the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. He rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Solomon was the last king to reign over a united kingdom. As God warned him, that kingdom would be divided. So Solomon was the wisest king Israel had ever had. But even he fell short of the standard that God required. See, God's people need a perfect king who would walk in God's way and obey God's commandments. And God give us that king in Jesus. See, Jesus' affection is not divided. He's totally devoted to his father. Even when he's tempted by the devil with hunger and power, he still follows God's ways. Jesus' loyalties were never divided. He was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And Jesus' kingdom is not divided. 
Those in him are one in Christ with a unity that is so wonderful it can never be divided. And so Jesus is God's perfect king. But as for you and me, we are like Solomon. We're not totally rebels. We love God and we generally try to follow him. But our affections are divided. Our hearts are not fully given to him. And so like Solomon, you and I deserve God's judgment. In the end, the sins that drag us down aren't massive or complicated. They're not subtle sins that require complex thinking. No, we're drawn away from God in small steps that we know are wrong. But we think aren't really important in the big scheme of things. And so our hearts are compromised. We're not hardened criminals, I hope. Even there's hope for them. We don't go out and steal from houses around us or have a huge string of affairs. But what we do is we compromise on what we know to be wrong in God's standards. We lessen their importance and we think, oh, God won't mind or God doesn't see. And so tonight, let me ask you, what rebellion, what thoughts, what habits are you and I clinging on to that we should have given up long ago? What clear instructions from God do we quietly choose to ignore or somehow think in our arrogance that doesn't apply to me? What is it that draws us away from the loving God who desires our affections? Maybe relationships. It may be money. It may be security. The desire to control our future Without God. It may be fame or just some attention for some for, from someone we care about. Forgetting that God loves us more than we could ever believe or understand. Whatever it is, we need to listen to God's warning about our hearts. Just as Solomon's warning was to lead him to repentance. So we need to repent that when we hear God's warning and put our trust in the God who has sent his son to die for us. For it's only then by repentance can the story of our lives have the ending that God wants. Only by repentance can we avoid the ending that God has warned us so clearly in his word. Because Jesus is the perfect king that the Bible speaks about. And because he dies the perfect death, you and I can find forgiveness in him when we repent of our compromised hearts. See, the truth is, I don't, you don't, fully love God and fully follow his commandments. We know that to be true. But through repentance, we can escape the penalty of his judgment because of King Jesus' perfect sacrifice for us. Here's the invitation. Repent. Repent. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And know in him to be part of a kingdom that can be never be divided. I'm going to close tonight 
with words from the lips of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he entered the word, this world, he said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the perfect king. Help us to let go of those sins we cling to and help us to give all of our love and affection to bring everything we are under your authority. Help us to resist the temptations that face us day by day and help us to give all our loyalty to you. And help us to avoid rebelling against you. Lord, as we repent and trust in you, we are now part of your eternal kingdom. And we thank you for this loving warning from the life of Solomon. We praise you for our perfect King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Donnacony Parish podcast. We're happy for this teaching to be shared for the advancement of gospel work and to help make disciples. For information about Donnacony Parish, please check out our website www.donaglonyparish.co.uk or find us on social media.